Good morning. morning. I noticed we have a higher testosterone count this morning than normal because of the women's retreat. That's okay. We'll work with that. Uh, We're going to be in the gospel passage that Fred just read, Luke 16, 1 through 13. I'd encourage you to get your Bibles out and uh, track with me as we go through the verses. Um, This is a somewhat baffling parable, I think. Uh, Most scholars consider it one of the most difficult of Jesus' parables. And if you read some of them, that's that's saying something, because they're not all easy, okay? So to say it's one of the most difficult uh, is something. And having spent time studying this this week, I would have to agree with that. Um, But we're still going to see what the Lord has for us. We're going to glean what we can, even from a difficult passage like this one. So if you would, hang in there with me, okay? Do that. Fasten your seatbelts, clear the exit rows, all that stuff. Um, We're going to make forge into this together, okay? Uh, Let's first talk about audience. It's helpful to know who Jesus is talking to because that contextualizes everything. He's speaking to the disciples. Though, the picture you need to have in your head, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're still in the background. They're still listening in on this from the previous conversation. We know this because they, um, they scoff at Jesus later in verse 14 after this. So it's intended for the disciples, but the Pharisees are listening along. So we need to take his remarks as intended for the disciples. Ergo, this focused on discipleship what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we must keep that in mind as we engage in what he's saying. And the issue that he speaks of here are discipleship issues. And the issue Jesus addresses in this passage is, anybody want to take a stab at it? Greenbacks, money. Money, a discipleship issue? Indeed. And if you guys think I'm piggybacking off of the quarterly financial report from last week. I'm not. This is exactly where the lectionary fell. I assure you. Okay. Nobody's capitalizing on that. Okay. So money, a discipleship issue. Imagine that. Now the main character here who we see and hear a lot from is the manager. He manages the assets and resources of the wealthy owner. He's the other character in this story. In other words, the things he manages, they aren't his. Okay. He's managing them, obviously. And this manager position was sometimes reserved for like a high-ranking household slave or other times for a free person. It doesn't, text doesn't say for certain which uh, category this man falls into, uh, but the textual clues seem to imply he's probably a free man. Anyway, the manager. So here's the story. The owner gets wind of some mismanagement, and he immediately calls the manager to account for himself. He essentially says, you are so fired. (laughs) And not only that, I want to see the books. Okay. Show me the accounts. Show me where things are at. Now notice the manager's guilt here. It's presumed. And notice the manager doesn't argue. No, no, no. I'm innocent. He doesn't. Okay. So there's a presumption here that he is guilty, that some of these charges brought against him are true. Now, as you can imagine, this inspires a certain degree of panic within the manager. You see that in verses 3 and 4. And that kind of comes out in the form of this soliloquy thing where you can hear him talking to himself, reasoning to himself, thinking out loud. Okay, physically, I can't do hard labor. Okay, so that's out. See him reasoning through this? And I'm too ashamed to beg for charity. Okay, that's out. What will I do? And he has like a light bulb moment. You almost be rendered as like an aha or a eureka moment. And here's his idea, okay? So his master's firing him, okay? So perhaps he can at least improve his status with other key people, the master's debtors, okay? On his way out, okay? 
because those connections might become very important once he is unemployed. He's exercising some foresight here, is he not? Who might possibly receive him? That's the language in the text. Or show him some hospitality, show him a little love once he loses his job and or his home. Who's going to do that? If he could only find a way to create some goodwill between himself and the debtors and possibly assuage the, the, the owner's wrath at the same time. Hmm. Hmm. His wills are turning. That's what you need to hear here in this, in this uh, verses 3 and 4. So he concocts a plan. And here's what it is. What he does is he deals with the debtors one-on-one in secret. He needs to be discreet, right, if this plan is going to work. And his MO is simply kind of this, well, I'll take what I can get. So what he does is he lowers the amount due by each debtor. Now, for me, I love the irony. Do you notice how he asks, like, how much do you owe my master? Um, Shouldn't he know that? (laughs) Wouldn't you think? That's sort of a basic thing. I, I think there's an irony there. That's basic information. Perhaps that's a sign of his mismanagement or oversight, lack of oversight. I don't know what got him into trouble in the first place. I thought that was a little odd. How much did my master owe you? Lose me this much. Well, okay, we're going to cut it down to this. And while the explanations for how he altered their debts, doctored the books, went about it, that's a real hot debate amongst scholars. I'm not going to get into that. The point remains that he did, okay? He cut down the bill. It's discount time. Discount time. So, okay, first debtor, here's what happens. Um, and it reads different in different translations in terms of the amount uh, of, of the goods we're talking about. For the first debtor, about 900 gallons of olive oil. He cuts it in half, goes to 450. That's the equivalent of what Fred read. I'm just converting into our uh, measurements. The original amount that would have been owed was around, worth around three years of wages, okay, for the average laborer. So what you need to hear, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that's owed. It's a lot of money for the average Joe. The second debtor doesn't get off quite as easily, but he still gets 20% off, right? He goes from 1,000 bushels of wheat to 800, okay? And the original debt owed there being roughly 8 to 10 years of salary for an average laborer. Again, a large sum of money. So big money in both cases, if you're in the debtor's shoes, okay? Big money. Years of salary, years. And presumably, the owner had more than these two debtors, thus telling us that he's very wealthy indeed. So it kind of reinforces the fact that he's a man of means. I want to suggest that these two instances, these two debtors, are examples here. They give us a trajectory. The steward, or the manager, excuse me, most likely did this, these one-on-ones, with all the owner's customers, okay? So there's probably more than two, in other words. But they're just here to give us an example. So, no doubt, the manager's plan put him in a favorable with the debtors. Another very important factor when you're about to be unemployed and when you're about to be in need, okay? He's continuing, or excuse me, he's counting on a little quid pro quo. Do you know what that means, quid pro quo? This for that. A little trade, a little I scratch my back, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, okay? The manager is well aware that these connections might result in another job, a place to stay, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's take a step back. Let's evaluate his plan, Okay, let's evaluate it. His solution takes care of him in the present and hopefully satisfying the owner to a degree. But should that fail, he should be in good standing with the debtors in his future days, should he need to call in a favor. Okay? So he has a short-term plan for the present, and he appears to have a long-term plan for the future here as well. Sounds pretty effective, sounds pretty well thought out to me. Okay? Then we arrive at verse 8. Okay, if you want to dive in here with me, you can. 
the owner commends him for acting, and the word there is shrewdly, or for being shrewd. It's not a common word. It only occurs a few times in Luke and Acts. Shrewd means to be wise or to be prudent. To be wise or to be prudent. Pardon me. Uh, though notice the manager is still also labeled as dishonest. It's kind of a contrast, isn't it? Or a paradox? This is where some of the difficulty and confusion comes up in this passage. What is Jesus endorsing here exactly? What is he endorsing here? The manager seems to work the system, and yet the owner says he acts shrewdly. Okay? There's some commendation for this kind of savvy, though the owner doesn't comment on the morality behind it. So the manager is commended for acting cleverly, decisively, for being shrewd, but not necessarily praised for his dishonesty. To clarify, Augustine says it this way. Jesus is recommending to the disciples the manager's foresight, prudence, and ingenuity. Foresight, prudence, ingenuity. In other words, he's a savvy, creative problem solver with one eye on the future. He's commended for that. Okay? In the latter part of verse 8, Jesus takes us out of the parable and he starts to comment on it. Now, this is really good because have you noticed Jesus doesn't always comment on his parables. Sometimes he just puts them out there, does a mic drop, and out, he's out, right? Um, oftentimes he will not comment or interpret them. So I'm so grateful that he builds this out a little bit for us. And here's his commentary. And this is, again, latter half of verse 8. Worldly people, they seem to know how to navigate the world. They have a certain savvy. But as for believers, people of the light, children of the light, depending on your translation, they aren't as savvy or shrewd in their worldly affairs. We often lack a certain cunning as to how to navigate the world. It reminds me of some other similar advice Jesus gave to his disciples. Heard this one? Be wise as serpents and gentle or innocent as doves. Right. Uh, the manager probably only fit that first part, but similar saying. Jesus is exhorting his disciples, I think in a similar way as that saying. Do not be naive as to how the world works. Be wise, be prudent, in short, be shrewd. Okay? Jesus' commentary continues in verse 9. And it doesn't get any easier. Sticky wicked here. Uh, verse 9, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Verse 9 is, I think, almost as difficult as 8. Now, this verse almost sounds like it was pulled from Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? I just, it sounds like the wisdom literature to me. But Jesus is speaking about, and here's a word you've heard before, mammon here. Mammon, that's the Aramaic word for money or wealth. He's talking about mammon here. Luther called wealth, quote, the most common God on earth. That's good, right? Money has a powerful draw. It does. And while wealth, mammon, there's nothing inherently bad about it, it's how we use it that's the issue, right? Because it, how we use it reflects what's going on here in our hearts, yeah? So the parallel Jesus seems to be driving at is this. Disciples, use your money for spiritual purposes in a wise and in a shrewd manner, in the same way that the people of the world use their material wealth. So... If I can put it this way, verse 9 is an odd and, and somewhat roundabout exhortation to be generous. Be generous. And that would have come about through two means, probably through like almsgivings or through canceling or forgiving debts. And both of those are commendable in the Old and New Testament, okay? Both those things. One of the byproducts of your generosity 
this will endear people to you. How about that? And will likely create some relational bonds that you can count on later. Money doesn't last. What's the saying? You can't take it with you, right? Can't take it with you. So you might as well put it to good use in this life. So invest in relationships. Invest in human capital. And when your money's gone, when you cross over the Jordan and enter heaven, all that's left is eternity with the Lord. No money in heaven, so you go out with a zero balance. That's the exhortation here, right? Bottom line, Jesus intimates here in 9 that being generous in this finite life shows a degree of charity and foresight. Okay? Charity and foresight. I don't have time to go into this, um, but in the first century, that cultural context, you got to understand, just know this, that patronage and friendship were really intertwined. Really, really intertwined. Uh, and think of it. This is still true for us today, I would say. Money often divides people into social groups, does it not? Right? Based off the things you can't afford, the things you can't afford, think of vacations. What kind of vacation can you afford to go on? Can you spend four weeks in Greece? <laughs> I cannot. Perhaps you can. Maybe you can afford a week, uh, you know, out on the beach. Maybe you can't. Money divides us into social groups. And there's a reality to what Jesus is saying here about money and patronage and friendship. They're just really locked together. So it makes these relational connections very important that he's talking about in verse 9. In verse 9, it's interesting. I find Jesus being, he's like the ultimate realist here. He's being a very diehard pragmatist. Be generous in this life because that will likely endear people to you. And once all your money's gone, you can't take it with you, you'll find your future with me in heaven. You'll be welcomed, quote, into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is creating a clear spiritual parallel to the manager's situation. Let me bottom line it for you. The manager uses his commerce and wealth, cutting deals, discounting the bills, as a tool to secure favor with the debtors. This gaining of friends secures him a future. Okay, so he's reading this on a spiritual level too. 10 through 13. Told you I was going to make you work a little bit. <laughs> um, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy in someone else's property, who will give you your own property of your own? Fair question. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money, or God and mammon. Okay, in these verses, Jesus pivots a little bit, and he sharpens his observations about how we use our wealth, how we use our money. As one of my seminary professors used to say, Jesus goes from preaching to meddling. He does that here. He goes from preaching to meddling. Things get a little more pointed here. He turns up the heat, as he often does. One of the themes that emerges from 10 through 13 is trust. Trust. Those who are faithful with a little, right, who manage it well, who manage it wisely, they can be trusted with more. And the inverse is true, too. See, if you're dishonest with a little, if you manage it unwisely, you only use it for your own benefit, then you can't be trusted with more. And in that case, God won't give you more. See, this is about our character. This is about a sense of integrity, and Jesus more than implies that God will give away his riches and gifts to good, wise managers, those who've proven themselves faithful with their earthly resources. 
It's interesting. As I read through 10 through 13, it's like Jesus is essentially asking, who can I trust? Who can I trust? Who is trustworthy? Okay? Who can I trust? Who's trustworthy? If you mishandle your worldly riches and resources, how can I entrust you with the spiritual riches and gifts of the kingdom? You see the parallel Jesus is making there between material wealth, spiritual riches? He presses in even further. If you can't be trusted to manage someone else's estate, how are you fit to own something for yourself? Okay? God is looking for people he can trust and drawing parallels between how we manage our wealth and what we're going to do with the more precious assets, spiritual assets, the precious riches of the kingdom of God. So, just to belabor the point a little bit more, just a little bit, Jesus more than suggests that we'll handle our money in the same way that we'll handle heavenly riches and assets and gifts. He's, just, he's, he's dead honest about that, on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Jesus is asking, who can I trust? Who is trustworthy? Who will be faithful to what I've given them? Now, our passage ends with a bang, I think, in the very familiar words of verse 13, that part about you can't serve two masters. You've all heard that, right? And every time I hear this verse, it's like Bob Dylan cranks in my head. you got to serve somebody. I can't help it. It just goes in my head. The picture here of two masters is there's a household slave with a choice to make, serving mammon, money, or the Lord. You simply can't be fully devoted to one without being undevoted to the other. So one of, the Lord is, one of those is Lord over you and one of those isn't. That's just how it works. Now, you've got to hear how uncompromising Jesus is here. Very uncompromising. No middle ground. Now, again, he's not decrying everyone who possesses wealth. That's not the issue. He's speaking against those whose God and master is their wealth. Wealth isn't inherently evil. It's not. It's just what you do with it and the place it holds uh, right here in your heart. 13 uh, ends with a bang and, and reinforces, I think, a big theme in Luke, that joining the kingdom of God, i.e. being a disciple, means giving up all your other commitments, okay? Including the temptations of economic stability and security, all that, okay? All right, let's step back from the passage. I know I hustled you through quite a bit there. Uh, it could have been an hour sermon, but I decided not to bless you with that. Uh, Let's look at the so what of the passage. Like, okay, we've talked all about money and being savvy and being shrewd and two masters. Okay, Pastor Joel, please boil this down for me a little bit. I would be happy to because I think this begs for it. Uh, three points. And for all this passage's difficulty and nuance, I think the applications are pretty straightforward. Thanks be to God. So three core observations here. Uh, first, and forgive the obvious, we are all managers. Better said, let me put a biblical tack on that, we're all stewards. We're all stewards, i.e., we don't actually own anything. Biblically, we don't own anything. All is from God's hand, and we are merely stewards of it, right, of the life he gave us. Folks, this is so radically countercultural to how our culture conceives of money and wealth and possessions. We steward this. We are managers, and the reality is money is a big part of our lives, is it not? I mean, it, it affects most of us on a day-to-day -day basis. Jesus spoke more about money than he did heaven or hell, believe it or not. And he's going to continue to talk about money throughout the rest of this chapter of Luke, on and on and on. So how do we steward our money, right? How do we steward it? The exhortation in this parable is to use it wisely 
prudently, with foresight. Be shrewd. Be shrewd. Be savvy. Does that describe you? We're all managers, but the question is, what kind of manager are we? Are we shrewd and savvy, or are we foolish and unwise? So the first point is simple. We're all stewards. So how do you steward? Okay. Second part, which I'll get to in just a sec. Perhaps some of you need, and I do often, need to, uh, God to reorient you to remind you of what it means to be a steward. What, what does that mean? Biblically speaking, we don't own anything. Maybe it's time to revisit 1 Chronicles 29, 14. You'll hear it in our liturgy. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Okay? So the second point is this. How does being a steward versus an owner change your perspective? How does that change your perspective? How does it recalibrate your priorities? Because that's what it's intended to do, right? It's supposed to recalibrate us. Being a steward means you start asking questions like this. Uh, how, would you, how would God have you make use of his money? Right? Not mine. God, how, how would you have me use your money? How would you have me use that? Which leads to the next point. Okay, so second point is, how does being a steward versus an owner change your perspective? Finally, Let's again recall Jesus' audience here, the disciples. As I said in the beginning of the sermon, how we handle our money is a discipleship issue too. And God would have us use our finances generously and for the benefit of others. Now, compared to the rest of the world, statistically, we as Americans are amongst the wealthiest in the world. We have a high standard of living. What would God have, us, uh, have of us given this is true? What would God have of us? And that brings me to third and final point. Are we generous people? Are we a generous people, right? What would God have us do with his money? There's that question again. Lord, what do you want us to do with your money? As Jesus makes it very clear here, how we handle our material assets tells us something about how we're going to handle spiritual assets and gifts of the kingdom of God. Okay? I'll close with this. Let us be shrewd, generous stewards of all our assets, material and spiritual, Right? Let us be worthy and faithful of all that the Lord entrusts into our hands. And may we give the Lord, who is a trustworthy master, yes, reign over every area of our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.